Don't you just love seeing baptisms like that? It's great to watch people as they follow Christ in believers' baptism. 58, yeah, you can clap again if you want. Just, uh, just a great day. We had a, just to update you guys on kind of what's going on, we had a great Sunday all the way around just to give you a snapshot of what's happening at Grace. We had over 1,500 people here at Fremont campus, uh, almost 800, right at 800 at uh, the Tiffin campus, over 200 at the North, uh, Northwood campus, and uh, over 2,500 combined. That's not counting people who are tuning in online and stuff. And God is blessing, and we appreciate all you being part of our church family. God is gracious, and it's neat to see how he's working uh, in our church. Um, and then we got Easter coming up, right? And so that's next Sunday. Are you guys ready for that? You are not ready enough for Easter. I can just tell you that right now. You better get way more ready. Are you ready for Easter next Sunday? Yes. All right. Yeah, it's good. We're going to have a great time. Can't wait to be there. We're going to blow the doors off so you come in here and bring somebody with you. Uh, that's why Luke mentioned the signs. You know, this week is kind of one of those weeks, maybe more than any other week of the year, where people who don't go to church are going, hey, yeah, everybody's talking about Easter. Maybe, maybe I should take my kids to an Easter service or something. It, it, people think about coming to church more than any other time of the week leading up to Easter. And so it's a great time to invite people. If you don't want to invite them, another way is uh, we're going to be sending out a mailing to our community. And so having your, a sign up in your yard will we'll connect that. Oh, one of my neighbors goes there. Uh, that'll just help us. So uh, do that. You can grab them on the way out, as Luke was saying uh, because I know some of you probably have some dusty ones in your garage. You can clean those off, but the thing is, you'll forget about it, won't you? You'll go home and forget all about it, but you have, if you have a sign in your hand, you're not going to forget about it. So think about, think about it. Uh, I know, I know, they're a pain to mow around. Yeah, take one anyway, come on. All right, let's do it. So we're, we're in a series, The Road to the Cross, and we've been talking about the last month or so of Jesus' life, and when he decided, he had been to Jerusalem a few times during his ministry, but that last month when he says, hey, I'm, I'm resolutely heading to Jerusalem, and he knew that when he got there, he would be killed. And he kept telling his disciples that, but they weren't quite getting it. They weren't processing because they believed he was the Messiah. They saw that unfolding in a whole different way. But Jesus kept telling them, on the way there, he taught people that, hey, we've all failed at keeping God's moral law, and so we've all done wrong, and, and really, we, we incur a punishment for that. I mean, that, that's what justice is, but that God loves us, and God loves us anyway, and God wants a connection with us, and he made that possible uh, through Jesus. That, that's the thing that he's teaching all the way, and then he's, he challenged people to count the cost and follow him. And we say, well, well what, what's the cost? Well, we talked about that a couple of weeks ago, and, and the cost is knowing that when we make a decision to follow Christ, that will change things in our life. Uh, God will change us from the inside out. And not only that, because we believe certain things, that will change some of our relationships, because We'll have connections with people who don't believe that way. And so even though there's no persecution in our country, not much, hardly any, you know, at this time, there's still a cost to that. And Jesus says, hey, count the cost, 
and follow me. And by the way, when he says follow, really, that's us being a disciple. All disciple means is a follower. So if we're a follower of Jesus, we're a disciple. And that's what he wants for all of us, that we would follow him, we would be one of his disciples. So we use that word in two different ways. We sometimes say to disciple the, the 12 guys that were walking around with Jesus for three years. Yes, they're disciples. But then also, all of his followers, in another sense, are also called disciples from then on. So that would be us. And uh, as we do that, as we want to follow Christ, that, that process of discipleship or being a disciple is basically that we would put Jesus first in every area of our life. And so none of us get that right perfectly. You know, we don't always nail that, but we're challenged to always do that. Keep putting Jesus first in our hearts every day, every morning, every decision as we start the day. Keep putting him first. So back, back to what's happening on the road to the cross. We talked about how right before Jesus got there to Jerusalem, he's on the road actually from Jericho to Jerusalem. It's south, but it's up to Jerusalem, Jerusalem higher elevation. Heading up to Jerusalem, and right before he gets there on the road is a little village named Bethany that's less than two miles away from the gates of Jerusalem. He Anytime he went to Jerusalem, he stayed at night in Bethany, and he had several friends there. One was a guy named Simon the leper, but also Lazarus and Martha. We talked about them last week, and then Mary, and on Saturday night while they were there, uh, they had a dinner in Jesus's honor, and during that dinner, Mary broke some, uh, a vial of expensive, very expensive perfume, and actually anointed Jesus's body, including his feet, and then publicly, because that's how the dinners were, kind of semi-public. I mean, the whole village is turning out for this. They all know who Jesus is, and they come out, and she undoes her hair, flips it over, and dries his feet off with her hair pu pu publicly and uh, causes quite a stir. The very next morning now is Sunday morning. Sunday morning, their Sabbath was Saturday. Sunday morning is what we call Palm Sunday, the Sunday before Easter. Palm Sunday, this is how things unfold on Palm Sunday. The, and, and I want you to get, to understand what we're going to read, you've got to visualize what's happening. Jerusalem is packed. People are coming there to celebrate the Passover, but the Passover is, is a, a week-long celebration. So people from all over Israel are crowding into Jerusalem, maybe two million people. I mean, they're busting at the seams. The countryside around is crowded. Everywhere is crowded. They're all there for Passover. Plus, they know, they've heard about Jesus, and they know that there's a claim. People are saying that he's the Messiah, the long-awaited king of Israel. And their expectation is that he'll sort of help them rise up and, and get out from under Rome. And, but as he comes in, there, there's all these rumors are flying. And then when they get there on Sunday, they've all probably heard the rumors. Jesus is nearby because he spent Saturday in Bethany. And so, I mean, everybody's buzzing. He's here. They expect him to show up on Sunday. Uh, here it's Sunday morning. There's turmoil. There's crowds. There's some confusion. 
There's expectation, there's emotion, there's tension. It's all buzzing in Jerusalem. And, and they're gathered there. Here's what happened and what Jesus said and what it means to us. And this is where he enters Jerusalem as the Messiah King. As he gets up and he's leaving his house, the house he was staying at in Bethany, he sends two disciples a little bit ahead and says, hey, you're going to find a colt of a donkey tied uh, outside a house. Grab that and bring that to me. If anybody asks, tell them the master needs it, they'll know. And so that happens. They bring, and that's where I guess we'll pick it up in the text. Luke 19, beginning with verse 35. So they brought it to Jesus and they threw their colts, coats on the colt. They threw their coats on the colt and put Jesus on it. And as he was going, they were spreading their coats on the road. As soon as he was approaching near the descent of the Mount of Olives, the whole crowd of the disciples began to praise God joyfully with a loud voice for all the miracles which they'd seen, shouting, blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord, peace in heaven and glory in the highest. Some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to him, teacher, rebuke your disciples. And what they're saying is, hey, it's inappropriate that the, that, and, and this is not just the 12, these are people that are followers of Jesus. They're all shouting. It's a big processional leading right up to the gates of Jerusalem. The Pharisees are offended because they're saying that he's Messiah King. And so they don't like it. And he's saying, rebuke your disciples for them saying that. And then Jesus has kind of an interesting response to that. Here's what, what Jesus said. But Jesus answered, I tell you, if these become silent, the stones will cry out. Interesting, right? And very actually ironic. Jesus is saying, even creation knows the king is here. The king has arrived. And if they didn't say it, inanimate objects like the rocks would be crying out. The ironic part is the religious leaders, the ones who should be praising God the most for this day, they're the ones trying to cancel out what's happening and try to keep a lid on everything. They're trying to undo what the crowd knows is, is happening and, and why this matters. Well, as he approached Jerusalem, Jesus, he's came down from the Mount of Olives. In the middle is a Kidron Valley. You could just see right across this little valley. And then up to the gates of Jerusalem. And as he's doing that, all these crowds are there. You can see the whole thing. And then Jesus, on the way there, starts weeping for Jerusalem. Why? Because he knows, ultimately, the people of Jerusalem are going to reject him. He knows that the crowds are indecisive and that he's going to be rejected, and that he's going to be killed. The reason he's weeping is he knows there's going to be a consequence for the people for rejecting him. After he's killed, for example, one of those consequences are going to be that Jerusalem is going to be destroyed. Jerusalem, the city that they've been at for hundreds and hundreds of years, is going to be overthrown and wiped out, which actually happens 37 years after this event. But Jesus knows that's coming, and so he weeps with emotion because his own people have, he knows they will reject him. And by the way, how does this matter to us? Well, it matters to us in this way. Jesus is presented by the crowds as king, 
Everybody should have recognized it because of everything the Old Testament said. Like one of the things is that he would enter Jerusalem on the colt of a donkey, and he's doing that humbly. So all this is happening, not the way they would expect a king to come, but it is the way they would expect the Messiah to come because that's what the Old Testament told them. And as all this is breaking out, they still reject. And the question for us is, Hey, Jesus is presented as king, and how do we react to that? Do we acknowledge Jesus as king in our life? And so for unbelievers, the challenge is, hey, you need to figure out who Jesus is and and make him your king or, or consider that. You need to think through that. And for believers, we've acknowledged he's the king of our life, but then our job then is that every day we would make him king over every area of our life. That we, just as I was saying, as a disciple, that we keep trying to follow him closer and closer. So this is all uh, happening, unfolding, uh, just as we, he's entering the city. So he goes into the city on Sunday. He actually then goes to the temple It's getting a little late. He looks around, and then he leaves Jerusalem, and he goes back to Bethany where he always stays when he's visiting Jerusalem. So he leaves, and now it's Monday morning. On Monday morning, he comes back, and then he cleanses the temple, and that's where we'll pick it up in the text. Jesus had actually done this once at the beginning of his ministry, but it it didn't really last, and people kept doing these things, which we'll get to in a moment. And so he does it again this last week of his life. Verse 45. So it's Monday morning. Jesus entered the temple and began to drive out those who were selling, saying to them, it is written, and my house shall be a house of prayer, but you've made it a robber's den. So, and then we know that he started turning over the tables, driving out the money changers, driving out the people that were selling animals. So what's happening here? Well, What's going on, why what he's saying matters is because the, the chief priests and the Pharisees sort of had a religious system. They knew who God was, although they, they failed to recognize Jesus as son, and they were worshiping people in the temple, which they were supposed to do. But what they were doing is they were actually scamming the people. The people were coming in, and out of their true worship to God, they gave offerings, especially this week during Passover. They would give their offerings, they would bring their tithes, they would come in. But the controllers of the temple, they made a decision. They said, we're not going to allow you to use Roman money to pay to bring offerings into the temple. We're making a rule that no coin with a pagan image, which all Roman coins had pagan images, no coin with a pagan image could be put into the temple offering. Well, to do this, the, to get money, to convert their money, that was in short supply, kind of hard to get, so that all happened at the temple. Well, then what was happening there at the temple is they were charging excessive exchange rates as they were exchanging Roman coins for other coins without pagan images that would be more acceptable to the temple. Well, as they do this, they were just scamming the people. They were just making profit off of the people before the people gave their offerings to God. And so Jesus 
causes a huge commotion. He flips over the table. He drives out people that are doing this thing, causes a huge old scene. And, and what is he saying while he does it, while, while he's doing this? He's saying, hey, the temple is a place of prayer. The temple is also a place of teaching. We know that because Jesus taught there. That's what the temple was there for. But now the leaders have made the temple into just a way for them to make prophets. And Jesus is condemning that. And, it, and then it continues in verse 47. And he was teaching daily in the temple. So he's teaching on Monday and Tuesday. While he's doing this on Monday, the leaders are asking him, they're challenging Jesus. And, and think about it. The crowds are packed in. Everybody wants to see who Jesus, they've all heard about Jesus. They want to see who this guy is. They want to hear what he says. So people are fighting, packing in to where they can see or even better hear what Jesus is saying in the temple grounds. And the whole place is packed. People are pushing, shoving, and there's this dialogue that's happening. Then the, the Pharisees come up and they challenge Jesus. He's just disrupted kind of the way they do the whole week of Passover by, with the offerings and stuff. And so they challenged Jesus, whose authority? By what authority are you doing this? Who's, who, you, know, do, you don't have the right to come and start running things the way you want to run them kind of a deal. And then Jesus, they ask him this publicly, Jesus has to respond. And if you'll remember the story, the way Jesus responds is he says, Okay, well, what about John the Baptist? Now, John the Baptist, all the people considered him a prophet. He was recently, maybe uh, months ago, killed by Herod. So he's already been killed. But he asked him, hey, John the Baptist, that guy, was he sent from God or was he just doing his own thing? And then the Pharisees realized, okay, well, if we say he was sent from God, John the Baptist said Jesus was the Messiah. So we can't say that. But if we just say, no, John was just here not from God doing his own thing, well, the people may end up stoning us. I mean, there'll be a riot. We might be killed because everybody sees John the Baptist as a prophet. So they're stuck. So they say, we don't know how to answer that. And Jesus says, well, then I'm not going to answer you. And then he goes on teaching in the temple. So that's how it's all playing out. And they can't really stop him and Verse 47 continues, but the chief priests and the scribes and the leading men among the people were trying to destroy him. And they could not find anything that they might do for all the people were hanging on to every word he said. So they're in a bind. There's so many people there, such a huge crowd. They really can't just grab him and kill him at the time as they're all packing in to hear him in the temple. And so why does that how does that apply to our lives? I mean, what does that really mean to us? Well, here's the deal. Here's what we need to remember today. Jesus went in there and he upset the system for how they were doing religion. For them, he upset by his teaching sort of how they thought they should go about relating to God, although, and, and they were abusing some of that. They didn't come the way Jesus expected him to come. Jesus, they wanted the Messiah, but when Jesus showed up, the way he was teaching, they didn't like that. And it's the same thing that we have going on in our world today. People, most people believe there's a God. 
And a lot of people think Jesus was God's son. Not everybody, but you know, he existed and he did some amazing thing. Most important, per, most well-known person in history. And so you have to wrestle with that. And a lot of people, they believe in God and they have a pretty good view of Jesus. He's a great guy. But they don't like everything that he says. The problem with, our, and this is for our culture today, it's been this way forever. They recognize there's a God. They understand that Jesus is somehow connected to God. But then they just latch on to the things that Jesus says that they really like. And typically that's usually, you know, that God was loving, that Jesus accepted people, that Jesus went out of his way for the outcast, uh, the immoral person, the, the person that wasn't accepted in society. Whether rich or poor, Jesus went after those people. And so today, everybody knows that about Jesus and they love that about Jesus. But today, a lot of what Jesus said, they don't like. Like Jesus taught a lot about hell and judgment and that we all owe God and that we should be punished for our wrongs. Well, nobody today wants to hear that. They want to judge what's right or wrong. They judge other people. Hey, you're not doing this right. You shouldn't be able to say that. Hey, you need to be canceled. But they, they want to call the shots. And when it's God telling all of us that we, the right thing is for us to be judged for our sins, people rebel against that. Or they don't even rebel about, against it. Here's kind of what they do. They put the things they like into the good category, and then everything else into the sin category. They convince themselves that what I like to do is good, and I don't do any of those bad things. But God's saying that's not true. We've all done wrong, and we all deserve punishment for that. So as the leaders are trying to eliminate Jesus, and the crowds are packed in, and there's all this tension in the city, especially in the temple. Jesus comes back on the second day. He's teaching in the temple. It's Tuesday. This is the last day that Jesus will publicly teach the crowds in the temple. And while he's there, people are packed in to hear what he says. He's already had this confrontation with the religious leaders. Everybody's getting, there's big time tension. And then Jesus tells a story that describes exactly what's happening in real time in Jerusalem while he's telling that story. Does that make sense? He's giving a story that's describing what's playing out in real time. So, and, here's, so, and here's how it goes. We'll pick it up in Luke 20, verse 9. And he's going to tell a parable. And remember, a parable is a short story with spiritual truth. Here's what he says. And he began to tell the people this parable. Here's the story. A man planted a vineyard and rented it out to vine growers and went on a journey for a long time. At the harvest time, he sent a slave to the vine growers so that they would give him some of the produce of the vineyard. But the vine growers beat him and sent him away empty-handed. And he proceeded to send another slave. And they beat him also and treated him shamefully and sent him away empty-handed. 
And he proceeded to send a third, and this one also they wounded and cast out. The owner of the vineyard said, what shall I do? I will send my beloved son, and perhaps they will respect him. Now, you got to know at this point in the story, all the people are going, bad idea. You sent one messenger, they beat him, sent him away. You sent another one, they mistreated him, and it's getting worse and worse. And then the third one, they beat him up, and, and now... Don't send your son. We know from Mark, this is his only son, his beloved son. And now he's going to send his son. And the crowd's thinking, hey, this guy in the story, this is a bad decision here. No, don't send the son. These people are ruthless. And so they, they're all thinking that. And then Jesus continues with the story, verse 14. But when the vine growers saw him, they reasoned with one another saying, this is the heir Let's kill him so that the inheritance will be ours. And so there, there's a law that all these people would have known about when Jesus is talking that, that uh, property, when, when there's no heirs, when a guy dies and he has no heirs, the property would revert, the ownership would revert to the people who are living on the property if it wasn't the original owner. So that's kind of what's happening. So they all understand this. So they're saying, hey, we can kill this guy. And that's, again, more evidence of the only son. We can kill the son, then whenever this guy dies, that property is ours. So that's what they're thinking. And as he says this, the leaders know this is exactly what they want to do to him. They're trying to kill him. Verse 15. So here's the son. So they threw him out of the vineyard and killed him. And that's the end of the story. And then Jesus, so they kill the son. Then Jesus asks this rhetorical question. He says, where is that? Here, here I am, yep. What then will the owner of the vineyard do? What will the owner of the vineyard do? He's asking the crowd. He will come and destroy those vine growers and will give the vineyard to others. I mean, they all recognize this is a huge violation of justice. This guy has this land, he plants a vineyard, he hires some farmers, and then he's expecting a percentage of the crop, he doesn't get it, and he kills his son. And so need for justice is obvious. And, and then when the crowd heard that, the crowd that Jesus is talking to says, when they heard it, they said, may it never be. The crowd says, may it never be. Why do they say that? Because the crowd and the religious leaders, they've all figured out that they're in the parable, that Jesus is just telling this made-up story, but it's a story really about them. I mean, you have, these, you have the owner of the vineyard, they totally understand, oh, that would be God. And then they understand that the farmers, they're the people who are on God's property, who God's allowed you know, to farm and 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 take care of the crop. And then the messengers, the slaves, they understand, oh, this is what God has been doing through history. These are all the prophets that have come, and this crowd knows 
that there's a long history in the nation of Israel of treating prophets badly. Just read the book of Jeremiah if you're not convinced about that. Some they stoned, some they beat, some they killed. And so they all get that. And then, that's the messengers, by the way, including John the Baptist who has just been killed recently. And then the son, they're getting, Jesus is saying, he's the son. And so this story teaches them that they are right now in the process of not only rejecting the son, the owner's messenger, God's messenger, but that they're also planning to kill him. And so Jesus tells them why it matters. So here's what Jesus had told the people earlier in his ministry. It's in Luke 11. He said, you guys... You guys go about your business and you go, you raise money to repair and build the tombs of the prophets because they're, they're in graves all around Jerusalem. But it's your fathers who killed them. That's what Jesus said. He's saying the same thing here. It's you, you're thinking the same way. You have the pretense of building up the tombs, but you would have killed them too. You're the same way. And it's the same thing that we see playing out today. It's not just their day. It's that day until today. People don't like to hear God's message. A lot of people just reject it. And they don't just reject it. A lot of people go further than that. They not only reject it, but they want to silence the message. They don't want to hear the message. They don't want to hear from the messenger. The way we see that playing out today is people are canceled. You know, you're just, they just, they silence you. They de-platform you. They say you can't say things. That's what's happening in Canada right now. Preachers can't say everything that the Bible says because that's considered hate and they'll be de-platformed, cannot go out on the radio or on social media. That's happening right now. And there are people that would like to do the same thing here. A lot of people. Why? Because they don't like the message. And we see it happening all around us. It's interesting when you think about it. Because people, they will hate the message and they will silence people, cancel them, deplatform them, remove them, maybe jail them, whatever it takes. Jail them for being in church, happened in Canada, whatever, and it, it's coming here. They do all that. And it's weird because the people that are reacting this way, they do it with moral authority. They do it saying, we're doing this to be good. We're doing this to do the right thing. And what they're doing actually is they're attacking and tearing down people because they don't agree with their message. They're actually hating them attacking them, tearing them down, preventing them from speaking, canceling them, deplatforming them. But then they do it all in their minds with virtue. It's like hating other people, but cloaking yourself in virtue while you hate them. That's not what Christians do. Christians say, anybody can say anything, let's talk about it and let's debate it. 
And I'm not, what's wrong is when you attack people, when you deplatform people, when you cancel people, when you ascribe motives to people, when you say, well, they're doing that because of their character or something inside of them or they're evil, you know, that's where we go wrong. What we do as Christians is we should say, hey, I don't agree with your message, but you have the right to say it, you know, out there on the, you can say that out there. I'm not going to cancel you from being able to put anything on the internet or, or on the radio or whatever, but we can argue about it and disagree. And I can still love you and respect you, even though I totally disagree with everything you're saying. And we understand how that works. Now, the only difference in that is when it's about our children. Now, all of a sudden, it's like, hey, back away. Don't be teaching things to my children that I know are wrong. So that's the difference. So that's what we're faced with. In our, but anyway, I'm sorry, I got on a rabbit trail there. We, we either accept him or reject him. And here's what it says. Um, Jesus says, but Jesus looked at them and said, so here's how Jesus responds. He says, what then is this that's written? And then he quotes an Old Testament passage. The stone which the builders rejected, this became the chief cornerstone. Everyone who falls on that stone will be broken to pieces, but on whomever it falls, it will scatter him like dust. And that's a quote from Psalm 118, verse 22. Now, that doesn't mean a whole lot to us, but for most of the Jewish people, the parts of the crowd that grew up in a Jewish home and were taught the Old Testament, they're going to recognize Psalm 118 is talking about the Messiah. So Jesus is saying something here about the Messiah. The religious leaders, they know this very well. They probably have this memorized. And a lot of the people too. The weird thing in, in New Testament times, when there would be teaching and sometimes they would quote scripture, people would have that paragraph memorized. And if you stopped at a certain point, people would have in their mind what the Bible said next, what the Old Testament said right after that. Well, this is interesting because that's verse 22. Well, a few verses later, I think it's verse 26, what it says is this. It continues Psalm 118 and says, blessed is the one who comes in the name of the Lord. Does that sound familiar? That's exactly what the crowds were shouting two days ago on Sunday. Blessed is he, the king who comes in the name of the Lord. This is Jesus reminding them, hey, this all applies to me. I'm the cornerstone. I'm the one that's being rejected. And the leaders know Jesus is saying basically that you call yourself a leader for God, but you're actually in opposition to God. And they hate that. They hate it. And so, um, and, and it's crazy because they, they see all this. Jesus is telling them what they're doing. Verse 19 continues. And the scribes and the chief priests tried to lay their hands on him that very hour. And they feared the people for they understood that he spoke this parable against them. You see the irony here? Jesus tells this story, then he wraps it up, and, and he, he confronts them with exactly what they're doing, and they totally understand that he's called them out, and he's exactly right about them trying to kill him, 
although they might have a difference of opinion on whether he's the son of God, but they totally get that they're caught in the act, he's called them out. But then instead of rethinking, they double down and try to kill him faster. They try to kill him right then. Why? To shut him up. Because they do not like what he's saying. They do not like what he's teaching. It's crazy. Because, and Jesus is warning, warning them, hey, to reject the son, it's self-destructing to do that. And if you do that, the blessings of the vineyard, this is God's people, the nation of Israel. Hey, the blessings of God, the blessings of the vineyard, that's going to pass to others as part of the consequences. And that's where we are today. All of us in this life have an opportunity to accept Christ or continue to reject him. To not accept is to reject. A lot of people try to cut the middle there out of that and say, well, I'm good with God and I'm good with Jesus, but I'll just kind of believe in Jesus my own way. Well, that's not the real Jesus. And that's not the real God. You've just made up a God and made up a son of God that makes you comfortable. That's not the God of the Bible. That's not a real God. And people are doing that all the time. Every time we hear God's word, we make a decision, whether we're believers or unbelievers. Now, once, if we're a believer, we've accepted, hey, I get it. I've sinned against God. God still loves me like he loves all of us. God's made a way through his son at grace sacrifice, and I've accepted that rather than rejected that sacrifice of God. And then when I do that, I become a believer. I become a disciple. I become a follower. But every day, I make decisions all through the day. Will, will Jesus be my king? Or in this area, will I reject Jesus as my king? Will I do this the way God wants me to do? Will I make this decision the way God would want me to decide it? Or am I just going to do my own thing for, for today or for this decision or for this event? We have this struggle every single day. And for non-believers, it's, hey, you have this one opportunity. You don't know how long it will last. This may be, you know, the time that you come closest to understanding what Christ has done for you to reject him as devastating consequences. It, it sort of boils down to this. There's either a God or there's not a God. For any of you that have been here any length of the time, you know I could go on all day about the evidences that there is a God, right? Everybody get that? So I'm not going to do that because it's time for me to stop, all right? <laughs> so let me just say it because I love doing that. Let me just say it a different way. There's either a God or there's not a God. And you can say, I don't think there's a God. I don't believe in God. But if you do that, if you would just allow yourself to think about it, your own logic will contradict your own statement. Because if you say there is no God, that means that life is meaningless. It means that we're just an accident. We weren't really supposed to happen. We're just here. It means that there's no morality. There's no right or wrong. Because we, right or wrong, just whatever we say it is, and if you haven't noticed, people say different things about right and wrong, right? But on the inside, we cannot live that way. None of us can. 
believers or non-believers. You cannot live like there is no God because we all know inside of us instinctively that, for example, murdering a baby is wrong. Everybody knows that, whether you're a believer or not a believer. We all know that human life is more valuable than a plant. Where's that coming from? Well, if that's true, then there is a God, and there is right and wrong. Your own logic will work against you, but people don't allow themselves to think about it. Because if they do, they come to the conclusion that if anything means anything, if we're not just worm food, if if life means anything at all, then that means there is a God. And if there is a God, it means there's a creator. And if there is a creator, that means I have an owner that I should owe allegiance to. It's just our own logic can bring us to that point. And so what people do is they'll try to cut the middle out of that and they'll say, well, yeah, I'm not saying there is no God. I'm an agnostic. That means there could be a God or there is a God, but we really don't know for sure. But you still have the same logical problem. Okay, so now you're saying there could be a God or there is a God. We just don't know how to relate to them. But if there is a God and there is meaning and purpose in life, well, then that means that there's right and wrong. Well, then that means logically, if God created us to think logically, that he would tell us what's right or wrong. And that's exactly what God has done. In the most famous person who ever lived, all around the world, the most famous person who ever lived is Jesus Christ. And all around the world, the most published, written, read book in all the world, all around the world, is the Bible. God is proclaiming that he exists and what is right and what is wrong, and basically we've all messed that up, and that he loves us, and he's made a way for us to be forgiven, but it comes at great cost, the death of his son. And so all of us have to figure this out. And so the challenge here is for every one of us. For unbelievers, it's rethink God. And if you have questions, it's great to have questions. We don't shut down and cancel questions. Hey, if you have questions, come, let's talk about those questions. You have an argument, let's argue respectfully. For believers, it's okay You believe in God, you're a follower, you're a disciple of Jesus. Well, the challenge for us is to make God first, put Jesus first in our hearts in every area of our life, every day. Not saying anybody gets this perfectly, I'm saying, but that's our continual challenge. What can we do today to serve God? Well, And this is a great week to ask that question, by the way. It's Easter. There's no better time to invite somebody to church as far as a week period, probably, than Easter. I mean, it's Easter and Christmas. We have this opportunity to point people to God. And that's what we should be doing. You can do that. Yard signs. We're going to send out a mailing to everybody in our community. 
That's why we're kind of thinking, hey, yard signs, are you talking about grace? It'll tie it in together and make it more effective. And, and why are we doing that? Because we want a few more numbers here at Grace? No, that's not it. It's because we want everyone in our communities to understand that God loves them, died for them, and wants to do life with them. That's our message. Let's stand together. Father God, we thank you for your goodness. We thank you for your love. We thank you for your message. Although sometimes it can be hard to hear for all of us, different places, different things, we don't want to hear it, but it's truth and we all need it. And Father, for those who aren't believers here, God, I pray that your spirit would touch your heart and they would continue to find out more information and make this decision to follow you. And for us who are believers, who we say that you're our king, that we would follow through with that challenge ourselves in every area of our life to follow through with that this week by pointing people to you. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.